we're trying to create people who are a force to be reckoned with, who don't, who don't just know what they believe, but they know why they believe it, and they can defend it articulately, passionately, and without backing down. Not being a jerk, but certainly um, not letting down. Their truth and their core political belief is their religion. And they are so adamant and passionate and emotional about it because that is their God with a little G. God really pressed on his heart. You need to go back to the girl that you had that abortion with and you need to apologize to her. And you need to apologize to her face to face. Fetus phobic is someone who is afraid of the natural consequences of heterosexual sex and is terrified of a preborn child, of a little baby. And I like to say that Roe v. Wade is the story or the court case everyone has heard of, but nobody knows anything about. Welcome, as I said, Dr. Alveda King to Fide's podcast. Dr. King, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jerry, and hello, everyone. Uh, Governor Walker, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Uh, great to be with you. I should say it's a pleasure for me to be here. I think Rush is doing that, too, and he's doing it at a time of COVID, the crisis, and he is he's basically saying, look, I may be dying, but I'm not. Yeah. Father Pavone, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Jerry. It's great to be with you and uh, with our viewers. But they have an objective. The objective is more tax money, more control, and a promotion of a political ideology. It's a pro-socialist, secular worldview. Hello and welcome to another edition of Fides Podcast. My name is Jerry Serino and I'm your host and I'm here with talent on loan from Rush. Hey, we all have a uh, redemption story, potentially. Uh, sometimes we uh, fall off the tracks a little bit. Maybe we're, we don't live a life how we were raised. Uh, you know, we're not living the life that we should. And uh, then we have a turnaround. And that's always an, a, a great and exciting thing and always great stories. Not, not all of us have a story of going from being involved in the mob to becoming a devout and strong Christian. Uh, my guest today is Robert Borelli, and Robert is a former Gambino crime family member who turned his life around, and it's a really great story. Robert, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you, Jerry, for allowing me to be on your show. It's an honor, a privilege, and I'm really very grateful to you. Absolutely. It's it's really my pleasure, and I uh, enjoy talking to you. So so tell us about your life. So you you have a book. Um, and in that book, you talk about your story, and it's really a phenomenal story um, that you started off. Let's start at the beginning, I guess. You know, you started off being in, you were in New York and you got involved in the crime family. Tell me about that progression when you first started uh, being involved at a young age, and what was the appeal? Well, Jake, I just want to correct one thing that's very important to me is. I wasn't a member because at that time I didn't have an Italian last name. I was an associate of the Gambino crime family. So I was not able to become a member, but I was held in high esteem at that, you know, as, as an associate. So gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah, growing up in Brooklyn, New York, like a lot of people ask, well, how was it growing up in your neighborhood? And, and I get baffled by it because it's really hard to explain the neighborhood. If you didn't live there, you know, it's really hard to explain it. But the best way I could say is it was tough, but also very secure, safe in, in a sense. We looked out for one another. It was a caring neighborhood, a loving neighborhood. And it wasn't until a little bit later on in life that I found out that it was kind of run by the Gambino crime family. And uh, when I say run by it, I don't mean that they were dictators in it, but they looked out for the neighborhood. That's just how it was back then. So 
I gravitated to that lifestyle because I come from a pretty poor neighborhood. You know, like I said, it was tough. I mean, to give you a little demonstration, we played ball on concrete. We didn't have any dirt fields. So, and some of us were bold enough to even slide because we wanted to be ball players on the concrete. And, you know, it hurt a little bit, but that's the kind of toughness of the neighborhood was the mentality of the toughness of the neighborhood. But these guys kind of looked out for the neighborhood. So I come from a family that was having hard times making ends meet, you know. A lot of the arguments maybe, not, not that they were constant, but they were, you know, most of the arguments were financial arguments, you know, five children, you know, to get food for the on the table, to, you know, supply the needs of the children, you know, school and all that was a little tough. Uh, so uh, it's not something that I say, well, I want to grow up to be like this. I want to have this kind of a family. So, but the mob guys, you see them, they had social clubs. They hung out outside. It was just right down the block from where I live. And, uh, you know, they were dressed nice, you know, just a great, uh, uh, something that was very attractive to me. So at an early age, I was one of those tough little kids, you know, and I, I mean little, I mean, I was a really short kid. And uh, I was around guys that were little, maybe a couple of years older than me in the neighborhood. I was like one of the youngest young kids in the neighborhood. So, um, you know, you didn't want to get picked on. And that was normal in the neighborhood. You would have fights, you know, with one another. And, and you didn't want to get picked on by the bigger guys. So I was kind of the guy that just made sure I didn't get picked on. So I was kind of like maybe the, I don't know, you would say the crazy young kid at the time. So the guys in the neighborhood would see that and they, they kind of liked that. So they let me hang out with them. It was just brief, you know, going in there, hanging out, shooting pool with them and stuff like that. And then eventually got close. And, you know, I say this thing, it's kind of like numerous in a sense. Uh, the first initiation I meet, I remember, and, and it wasn't like nothing physical or anything, but they gave me 25 cents. They told me to go next door. There was a candy store next door to the club. And they said, uh, get, you know, here's 25 cents. Go and get us a bucket of steam. We need some steam in here. And I really, really didn't know that you can't buy a bucket of steam. So I went next door, ordered a bucket of steam, and the Italian guy that was behind me was an old Italian man, didn't take nice to it and use some like really not nice words and chased me out of the store. And that was kind of it. And it was like kind of a joke and humorous. Um, so I mean that's kind of kind of the way it was. Then I just started gravitating with them, hanging out with them. They would have card games in the back and I would serve sandwiches, you know, kind of like some of the stuff you've seen on Sopranos, maybe one of the episodes, two of the episodes there. Or, you know, you go back into Goodfellas. And, and I, I mean, that that's kind of how the neighborhood was, you know. And that's just, and these guys, like, kind of took care of the neighborhood. They looked out for everybody. But the thing with these guys, well, they weren't, you know, you didn't see violence. You didn't see a lot of that stuff. And you see them as guys that took care of the neighborhood. But also, you got to remember, there was a lot of, even say my own mom and dad who, you know, they would take 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents and bet a number. In them days, you didn't have uh, the numbers or off-track betting OTB. You know, you wouldn't have those things. So chances to get a couple of dollars extra in your pocket to help out. And that's kind of like how I see them. And I thought it was a pretty nice gesture to try to help us out. So anyway, that's just how I looked at it. And that's kind of how I, I grew up. And then we moved from there. Yeah. It actually reminds me a little bit of um, for those that have seen the Bronx tale, a Bronx tale, it's yeah. called right where, where you see the young man just kind of get involved. It's cool. It's fun. His dad was uh, uh, was a bus driver. Right. And, and 
his son just didn't think, Hey, there was no money in that. And he was brought to the allure of these guys. Um, and that was, uh, something that was appealing. So, so obviously, you know, one thing, you know, hanging out with people who, who you end up finding out are connected, uh, as they say, and, and having a friendship with them and playing cards, but obviously it takes a turn into uh, crime, right? I mean, you get in a little deep, what, what point does that happen and how does that go? Well, like, like I said, I, you know, I did some burglaries, a little, little stuff like that, like, you know, robbing candy from a store, as, you know, a little stuff like that as, as a young kid. You know, you got to remember, as I was growing up in the 50s and early 60s, there was a lot of uh, mafia movies out. There was gangster, a lot of gangster movies out. So I kind of like emulated a lot of that that, that I seen on TV, you know, James Cagney. I rooted for James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. And, you know, people are like we're on TV. So I kind of like that there. And when I seen these guys, you know, made it easier. I mean, we had the Bowery Boys, you know, and stuff. So, I mean, just a lot of combination of TV. And I'm not saying that affected everybody's life, but it did have some impact on my life. And I try to emulate that in the next and that's just how it was. But as I got older, I started hanging out in Queens, New York. And there was uh, 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 the guy that I started hanging out with. His dad was one of the big guys in the neighborhood one of the mafia guys in the neighborhood who was a made man, you know, a member of the, of the mafia, you know, crime family. And would, I would hang out with him and we would go to bars and, and, you know, when you're hanging out and you're drinking, you go to bars and you're looking to build a reputation. It is fighting going on. You know, you can't, respect was one of the big things that I learned early in age. You want the people to respect you. The way that we did it, back in those days was we demanded respect. In other words, you were going to respect us or pay the consequences if you did, if you didn't. So people came into the bar and disrespected us in any way, shape, or form or tried to go out with a girl that was hanging out with us or, you know, buy her a drink or something. Fights were usually starting. That's kind of like how I started building up my reputation. But this young guy, this guy, Anthony, his dad would every Friday night would have like a dinner spread uh, and he would go and he would bring me with him and at this spread, there would be a whole bunch of guys, associates uh, of the Gambino crime family, paying honor to him and sitting down and having a meal. And he, I see all the respect that he got. And all these guys were dressed nice, pinky rings, nice cars. And I mean, I was in awe of it, to be honest with you. I'm like 17, 18 years old, and I'm hanging out with these type of guys. So I was like, I was infatuated with that life from that early stage and when i seen how much respect he was getting you know that's what i wanted for me so i i try to follow those footsteps yeah and i mean it's definitely appealing to a lot of people right respect money power uh that you know that's obviously not uncommon uh and so you were drawn to it in the sort of in the community that you were in right this was your neighborhood and that's where you found it uh, so, so take me into, you, you know, your life, you know, progresses and as you're, as you're surrounded by, you know, the, the Gambino family and associates like them, uh, and you get involved in, in drugs and that's where, that's where your life takes a downturn. Tell me about that. Well, let me just back up a little bit because one of the things that happened was that one of these bar fights when I was only 18 years old at the time, somebody got killed. And uh, my friend's father, I was wanted for that that case, meeting another guy. And my friend's father hit us out. So now, not only about the respect and the glamour of that lifestyle, but now with the dedication that this guy was hiding me out and taking care of me for about a year and a half. 
And when I came back into the neighborhood, I ended up getting arrested. I was only 20 years old and was for two murders and possession of a weapon. And, you know, you follow the oath of what you're taught in the streets, you know, and I kept my mouth shut. And when they finally did bail me out after a couple of months, that's kind of like when I was getting really, really with them and they would parade me around as the up and coming stuff. I stood kind of like you could say it was a test, but it wasn't really. It was real life. Uh, that I stood stood uh, the challenge of, of not riding on anybody or anything like that. And then later on, drugs came around. And, you know, drugs, there's big money involved. And I seen this one guy had a ton of money and fancy car and all that. And I asked what he did. And they said he was one of the biggest drug dealers in, in, in Harlem. And, you know, you mentioned it earlier, power, money and all that. But all those things come. If you have a lot of money, you have a lot of power. You have a lot of control over a lot of people, you know, because now you're going to be able to make them make money. So they depend on you. And that gives you a stronger crew, so to speak. So I was interested in that kind of lifestyle. Uh, the thing that happened, though, I started using the Coke. And it was kind of like you go out, you drink a little bit, it was social in, in a sense. And then it started getting the best of me. And before you know it, uh, Freebase came around. And then I started losing everything. I started getting more addicted to it. And then everything I started losing, my respect in the neighborhood and, and everything else, and my money and everything was going with it. Uh, crack cocaine came around as the cheaper high, and I got really strung out on crack cocaine. And uh, 1997 was the last time I, I had a drink and a drug, so uh, I got arrested. So <laughs> that helped me. I called on my angels today, the two warrant officers. Yeah, yeah. Who would think that that's you would you would call them the uh, your angels? But uh, so 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 now you're you're kind of at the lowest of the low, right? It, in your life and. Um, you you have a daughter at the, at this point. At what age did you um, did you end up having a daughter? Because she had a profound uh, influence or impact on you changing your life, right? Part of the addiction when my I was in a rehab center trying to clean myself up when my daughter was born. She was born in July 18, nineteen ninety three. I believe I was like forty years old, forty one years old. I believe at that time. So I went out. And I asked them to let me out for the birth of my daughter, you know, and I stood with her mom. We weren't married. She was my girlfriend at the time. And I remember my daughter being born and me crying like a little baby. And I thought that was going to change it. I have to just explain this here. I didn't want to change my action. I just wanted to change the consequences. I didn't want to be high on drugs, but I didn't want to leave the mafia lifestyle neither. And it just seemed like that lifestyle brought me back to the drugs. That was kind of a combination with me throughout a lot of the periods of time of my life. So when my daughter was born, I said, okay, now something that I have to, you know, take responsibility for and love and some something that that's going to grow to love me. And I thought that was going to be the answer to a lot of uh, my drug use and stuff. And seven weeks after she was home, uh, I had an argument with her mother and I decided, you know, I'm not going to deal with this. I went out and I'm on my mind. I'm thinking, okay, I'll just get high for the night and then I'll come back in the morning and things will be a little bit better. And that didn't happen. And, uh, and I, I, from that point in time, the mom thought it was best that I was into my daughter's life because I stood out for a long period of time just getting high and strung out on the streets. And so, uh, so take me to that that point of conversion to you know, and I, and I don't know, it, it probably wasn't a uh, you know an instant, you know, one day, you know, you change. Tell me about that process and where it took you from there. All right, January twenty third, nineteen ninety seven. Those angels, those water officers, 
locked me up. I had a case pending in, in Florida for a federal case with the Gambino crime families of people. And then I had a drug case of selling drugs to an undercover agent in, in New York. And I wasn't going to court, so these law officers found out where I was and they came and locked me up. And I wind up in Rikers Island and I know I'm not going to get any bail because I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was considered a persistent felony offender. I was considered a career criminal because I've been in and out of prison a lot of different cases that I had throughout the periods of my time. So when I go to get locked up, I'm not thinking conversion. I'm not thinking anything to get myself out of the mess I got myself into. So it's just two things I look for when I'm incarcerated. One is to get a good attorney to get me out of the mess that I got myself into. And the second thing is to get commissary money so I can live as comfortable as I possibly can while I'm incarcerated. So I started calling up a lot of people trying to get money, seeing some people who maybe I did some things for would return a fade, even though I was messed up on the streets at that point in time. But they would try to help me out. And everybody was saying no, even my own mom said no. And uh, this, uh, my daughter's mother, since I wasn't out in the streets, she was considered in, okay, you can call your daughter. I let her talk to you over the phone. I would call my daughter and talk to her a little bit over the phone. And then I called up this one girl and I figured she would help me out. And she said, go read your Bible. And I figured it's a brush off. So I cast that aside. And this other time I'm talking to my daughter while I'm incarcerated and she's crying. And her name is Brianna. So I said, Brianna, why are you crying? She said, of course, she won't come and see me. Now, if I could have ran and got medicated in any shape or form, I probably would have did that because the pain of just knowing how many times was I in that neighborhood, whether the mom would have let me see her or not, wasn't even a factor. The point is I never even tried to go see my own daughter again. I'd rather get high in the streets and avoid the pain than deal with the pain and try to see my daughter. So when she said that, knowing that I was facing a lot of time and good chance she wasn't gonna see me for a lot of years, uh, just broke my heart. I was raised Roman Catholic. So I'm not saying this for every Catholic, but for me, I knew about God, but I didn't know God. I think it's a big difference. And so I ran back to my, slammed down the phone. I didn't want the inmates to see me crying because my heart just shattered in tears and I was, I was just broken. And I ran back to my cell and I said, God, if you're real, either have somebody kill me or change me. It came to the point where I just didn't want to live anymore. The pain was that great. I didn't understand that God could change you. You know, it was kind of like, I figured the alternative would have been, you know, let me die. I was willing to, to just give up my life at that point in time. And obviously God honored the latter part of that, that request because I'm here speaking to you today. And from that point in time, it wasn't a super official kind of religious prayer. It was, God, please help me. God, please help me. If you're real, please help me. And I think God really honored uh, the sincerity of my heart, the cry of my heart for him to do something with me that I couldn't do for myself. So many times I try to clean myself up and get out of that lifestyle. And I find out being back in, no matter how many times I was incarcerated, I go back, clean myself up, go back with the mob, back on drugs again. It was a period of just over like that circle you know you keep running around and and I was devastated by it so i knew god was the only one that could help me if he was real and i believe he honored that there and from that point on time i just followed god's path and through the course of that time um being as broken i was and as desperate as i was the government gave me an offer that i didn't refuse and i, I believe today that it's an offer that i'm glad i didn't refuse to be honest with you 
And they said, if you cooperate with us, we'll help you start you off on a new life and put you, place you in the witness protection program. And uh, I jumped on that uh, opportunity. Yeah, that, that's so amazing. And and so your former name, Borelli, is your witness protection name, correct? So so that's not the, your given name. No, my given name is Robert Engel, E-N-G-E-L. And my dad was German and my mom was Italian. And that's why I couldn't get straightened out if I was going to follow those footsteps because your dad had to be Italian. Gotcha. Yeah, boy, those those mafia members, they're they're really strict on the rules. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that that's really amazing. It, it, it's kind of neat to, you know, to hear, you know, how you were searching for that respect, that love, that power, and you still, you were always searching for it. You were just searching for the wrong type, right? You know, because ultimately you found it in finding God and, and changing your life. You know, that was the real power. That was the real respect. That was the real, you know, what money is in a sense is you found it for real this time, not in the fake way. So, um, so you, you then, uh, ha- have been telling your story and, and utilizing this is great inspirational story, because as I said, at the beginning, a lot of people have a conversion story. Not everybody has one that's so dramatic and so challenging to turn around. Right. I mean, so, so you're doing this, uh, you're giving talks and you have a book called the witness and that's where it tells your full story, right? We just scratched the surface here. Where can uh, everyone find you and where could everyone get your book? Well, if you go to my, my website, robertborelli.com, and you could uh, make any a donation, any donation and, and request the book. Just give me the address, the name where you want me to send it. And I personally send it to you and I write some scripture in the book and I personally send it to you. Or you can go to Amazon.com and you can purchase it there, but I wouldn't be able to sign it or anything like that. So either one, I recommend the RobertBrelli.com because then I get, just to let your viewers know that the books that get sold or don't people that make donations, all that money goes into the ministry to keep the ministry going. I don't take any money from those books, you know, so that just wanted people to understand that. So any donation you make will go to the ministry. And I will send you the book. If you go to Amazon.com, there's no money that really comes into the ministry through that way. So yeah, absolutely. So definitely, definitely go to uh, Robert Borelli, and it's spelled B-O-R-E-L-L-I. So he finally got his Italian last name. Um, you know, you you actually should have made a put a put an, another vowel or an I at the end of angle. So go to robertborelli.com and uh, make a donation as best you can, and you'll get uh, a copy of his book. Uh, and he said uh, specifically he'll sign it. And here, yeah, so here's for those that are watching on the video, there's the, uh, I'm going to actually change the view here uh, so so we can see it. There's the book called The Witness. You got you to gotta check it out. Um, again, especially if you can get it signed, um, that would be fantastic. And if you're looking for a great speaker, if you're out there and you have an event, you have an organization that you're looking for a speaker to tell this story uh, to a group, this this would be a really really great story, uh, and Robert would be a great speaker for you uh, for your event because uh, it's a really interesting story and it's very very inspiring too. So um, so I appreciate you coming on, Robert. Uh, it's it's a pleasure to uh, to talk to you. It's a pleasure to get to know you, and uh, thanks so much for telling your great story. Well, thank you once again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really do appreciate it, and hopefully. We could continue to communicate with one another. 
Yeah, absolutely. I do too. I, I really hope so. And uh, thank all of you for listening to this episode of Fides Podcast. Again, please check out uh, robertborelli.com. Get his book. Please make a donation. Um, again, the donation goes to his ministry and uh, allows him to do the work that he's doing to hopefully inspire others to make a change in their life. And the book is called The Witness. So uh, Robert Borelli, thanks so much for being here. Thank all of you for listening. And please check out my podcast on all the different podcast apps, YouTube, Rumble, and 7 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays at uh, rightamericamedia.com. So uh, we'll see you next time. I know